This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're going to get started today, and as we get started, I just want to remind you of something that I I, I say behind the scenes a lot. See, we exist as a church to build you up, not to beat you down. This is one of those messages today that is, um, in all truth, it's a hard message. It's a difficult one, but we need hard truth from time to time because it helps us, and it helps us to grow and If you know me, you know that I'm the kind of person that's never going to skirt a conversation, and so I'm not going to not do this today. I want to get started today by telling you a story of one of my favorite artists. His name is Pablo Picasso. Uh, Picasso, later in his life, had become very famous, uh, and he was having dinner at an outdoor cafe in the town that he lived in. He was doodling as he was waiting for the entree to be delivered, and there was a group of ladies that were having dinner as well. They looked over, and they they saw that he was doodling. They began to speculate about what he was drawing. And After he had ate his meal, one of the ladies got the courage and went up and said, Mr. Picasso, would there be any way that you would give me the napkin that you doodled on earlier? And he said, no, ma'am, I won't give it to you, but I'll sell it to you. And she said, really? How much? He said, $60,000. Now understand that in those days, his paintings were selling for well into the millions. She said, $60,000? For a napkin that it took you two minutes to draw? That's foolishness. And he goes, no, ma'am. It didn't take me two minutes to draw this. It took me 60 years. 60 years of trying something new and failing. Trying and failing, and trying, and failing, and trying, and failing. You saw the effort that existed for only a few moments, but the background that led me to be able to do what I did in just a few minutes is 60 years of trying, and failing, and trying, and failing. $60,000. She said, I can't afford that. (laughs) So he stuffed it into his pocket and walked out. See, I think sometimes when we talk about marriages, we... We look at those that we've admired and maybe towards the end of their story, we see that they have what we would call a great marriage. And we're maybe at the beginning or in the middle of our story and right now we look at our story and we go, our marriage just doesn't look like theirs. But you haven't spent 60 years trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing to learn how to do it right. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you're here and you say, I I want a a better marriage, I I want a better relationship with my spouse, raise your hand if you're here. There's nothing wrong with that. I do. I do. Can I tell you where better almost always starts? Better almost always starts when you admit that you're wrong. That's where better normally begins. It's where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with us coming to Jesus to say, God, I'm wrong. You're right. I can never be right. The only way I can ever be right is that you were right for me. And so today I want to go back to where it all went wrong. 
the original installment of marriage. You see, God's original installment of marriage was quite easy. Think back to the story in the garden with me. God made Adam. He was perfect, untouched by sin. But God looked down on Adam and said, he's alone. And it's not good when man is alone. You know what happened when men are left alone. They quit showering, quit shaving, quit using deodorant and brushing their teeth. So God said in Genesis 2, verses 18, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper who is just right for him. So God did. And can you imagine that moment when, when Adam saw Eve for the first time, the first time that a, a perfect, untouched by sin woman was ever beheld? I think that's why we call her, whoa, man. Right? That's where it came from. Because you can only imagine what it would have been like in that moment. And God created her, as he said there in Genesis 2, 18, to be a helper for him. They had one job to take dominion over the earth. They had one rule, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Can you imagine anything more simple than that? Would you love tomorrow morning to wake up and only have one job in your life and one rule to follow? Wouldn't that be awesome? But you know what we see in them? Even if it were that simple, we still couldn't do it. And you know the story. They're tempted. And when they're tempted, Eve decided to help Adam become something he wasn't supposed to be. Do you remember the story? The devil said, well, if you eat from that, that fruit, you will be like God. And she thought, okay, I know that's not in the design, but that sounds pretty good. Let's do that. And when she did, sin broke everything. And it continues to make relationships more difficult. As a matter of fact, original sin, as it emerged in the context of a marriage relationship right there, continues to follow the pattern that it showed us in the garden. We see it right there with Adam. A lot of times when we hear the story of Adam and Eve, we like to think that Adam was maybe out minding his business. Maybe he was working in another part of the garden. Maybe he was out on an evening walk with the Lord. But we find out that that's not exactly the case. Adam was standing right next to his wife when she was engaging in the dialogue with the enemy of their souls. Look at what Genesis 3, 6 says. Then she gave him some fruit. She gave the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See that pattern of failure, of passivity that was born into the hearts of men there under our first father, Adam, a man who watched his family walk away from God and passively did nothing about it, just stood there and watched. And we see something else that emerged in the heart of Eve, and it really is kind of shown more as God, towards the end of chapter 3, begins to elevate what are the effects of sin in the context of marriage. He says to Eve in Genesis 3.16, he says, your desire will be to control your husband but he will rule over you. Let me just stop and say a lot of times when we talk about the dynamics of family, I think that maybe young women get a little confused on this, that God is not placing a higher priority on the man. In his views, both men and women are of the same priority. 
It's a complementary kind of, instead of priority, a complementary position that he puts them in. And so the position of leadership was given to the man, but Eve desired to take that. And in that, we see a dynamic that was born into many, many relationships that would follow. So I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. If you're here today and you're a lady, do you wrestle with the uh, internal need to have things your way? Now, I'm not going to call you controlling. I'm not going to say that. But you just have a strong opinion about the way that the world should be and everybody else is wrong. (laughs) Anybody here said that would be me? I do. I have that. I have that strong inside of me. Now, I want to ask you if you're a guy and you're here. Would you say that maybe in other areas of your life, you are a go-getter, you are uh, just strong and attentive, but at home, you're just a go-with-the-flow kind of guy, right? I don't want to ruffle any feathers, you know, just whatever works. Raise your hand if you're that guy at home. See, I think that there's a pattern that has emerged out of that original sin that we're going to see today in the couple that we're going to look at. Their name are Ahab and Jezebel. See, Ahab was a strong leader. As a matter of fact, he, he reigned as the king of the northern kingdom of Israel from 875 to 855 B.C. for 20 years. He is considered historically a strong political leader in Israel. He's considered historically a strong military strategist. And during the time of his reign, there was emerging within the spiritual life of Israel the worship of a false god called Baal. And it's almost if you look back, you can see that God had uniquely positioned a strong leader to turn the hearts of Israel back to himself. You see, Ahab's leadership could have led the people of Israel back to God, but he married a woman named Jezebel. Her name literally means, where is Baal? Like, if you need any greater sign, just look at her name, dude. It's not going to work out well. And when the scriptures talk to us about Ahab and Jezebel, look at what it says in 1 Kings 21, verses 25. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. So here's a man who had uniquely been positioned to make a difference, but he married a woman who made a very bad difference in his life. As a matter of fact, I think that we can look at Ahab and say that Ahab would represent the passive Spouse. Now, I'm going to kind of talk about this in kind of neutral terminology between now and the end of the message because it's not always that it follows that original template where the man is more passive. There are sometimes where our husbands are more uh, manipulative and controlling, but Ahab would represent the passive spouse. Look at how this story begins in 1 Kings 21, verses 2, where Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard for use with a 
vegetable garden. I want to stop there and just tell you a spiritual principle that's at work here. Is that every guy has one girl thing. Some of you guys, you go get pedicures and manicures with your wife. That's a girl thing. I'm just going to say it, okay? (laughs) Some of you guys got more hair products than your wife. That's a girl thing. Apparently, Ahab's girl thing was he liked to have a vegetable garden near his house, apparently. I know some of y'all are thinking, Kevin, what's your girl thing? Now, I like essentials. I mean, what's wrong? I I don't believe in any sort of medicinal value in them, but they smell good, y'all. And what's wrong with your house smelling good with a nice diffuser full of some peppermint? It's a nice, what's more natural than crushing 100 pounds of flowers to get two drops of oil? There's nothing more natural than that. So Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, look at this, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. There's something important to note there that legally, as king, because this land had been an inheritance, there was no way for Ahab to take it away. It had to be given. So Ahab went home. Watch what he does here. Sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay in his bed, sulking and refused to eat. Can I just tell you something? It was the first offer. Anybody that knows anything about negotiation knows that Naboth should never have taken the first offer. He should have went for more. But you know what Ahab did? Ahab got his feelings hurt. So I want you to tell you something about guys today that's so important, especially if you're a wife here, is that guys have really fragile egos. And Naboth got his feelings hurt, and he decided to take his ball and go home. He wasn't going to play anymore. Because Naboth didn't buy into it. Now, Jezebel in this story is going to represent the controlling spouse. And his wife is going to come into the story right after this. So in 1 Kings 21, verse 5, we pick back up. His wife Jezebel came in and asked you, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? So he answered, and I'm going to interpret a little bit. So he answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in this place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. <laughs> so Jezebel, his wife, said, again, I'm going to interpret. Is that how you act as king over Israel? <laughs> get up and eat and cheer up, and I will get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I want you to see the truth about controlling behaviors inside the context of our marriages and relationships today. The first thing you notes today is that we try to gain through control what can only really be given. We try to gain through control what can only be given. Think about this story as we look at it. I mean, this vineyard could have only been given. It couldn't be taken. There's no way that it could be taken from, from him. It had to be given. But Jezebel at the end says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it. It should only be given, but I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a scheme to get it for you. And in our relationships, oftentimes through control, we try to take what can only 
be given. You see, control is born from a perspective that assumes one of two things. My way is better or my needs and desires matter more. My way is better or my needs and desires matter more. In this moment, Jezebel is deciding my way is better than the way that this thing is going. Eve in the garden decided my way is better than God's way. So what is control? Control is when we use manipulation to get our way. Now I want to just kind of take a moment and just say that there are things that we often need. There's nothing wrong in the context of a loving relationship for asking for the things that you need. The book of James says that you don't have because you don't ask. So if you need time with your spouse, it is perfectly reasonable to ask for time with your spouse. If you need affection from your spouse, it is perfect, it's reasonable to ask for affection. But what do we do when we get to be controlling is we manipulate the circumstance to try to get what can only be given. So what is it we manipulate for? What is it we try to control to get? I'm going to give you four things. The number one is the affection of their hearts. You're never closer than you are in the context of a marriage relationship, and you will notice when their hearts begin to drift from you. It may drift to a friend or to a hobby. It may drift to their job. And what happens when we start to control is we try to manipulate so that we can get their hearts to turn back to us the attention of their minds. You notice that their focus begins to shift away. Maybe they're more focused on work or more focused on a hobby, but whatever it is, you know that they're not focused on you. So what do you start doing? You start manipulating and controlling to to try to get the attention of their minds focused back on you. The attitudes of their spirit. See, I think sometimes we manipulate in ways that aren't even bad. We see things that are sinful that are coming up, but we approach it in a way that is not righteous and helpful. And we try to manipulate their attitudes. And the last one, and this is probably the most prevalent one, is the actions of their bodies. It's so common for me to sit down with a couple that has struggled and to find out that early in their relationship, there was some sort of infidelity. And so after that, there emerged this pattern of control. You can't do this. You can't be around that person. You can't. And I'm not saying that it's not unhealthy to have boundaries, but there's a difference between setting boundaries and being controlling and manipulation. And we try to manipulate so that we get the attention of their bodies. See, I want you to see this principle of control and manipulation. This is so important. That if we use control to get what we want, we don't really get what we want. Because if the only reason that your spouse is being faithful with their body is because you are manipulating and controlling their circumstances, I just want you to understand they're not being faithful. You're not really getting what you want. So the question becomes then how? How do we work to control and manipulate? I'm going to give you two ways, and we see Jezebel do this in this story. The first one, this is number two in your notes, is that we control by belittling others with our words. We control by belittling others with our words. 
Jezebel said to him, is this how you act as king over Israel? Let me translate in a way that maybe you've heard it in the context of your relationship. You can't do that right. You won't ever get it right. Why are you even trying? And on and on and on. You see, controlling people often tear others down in a means of getting their way. It's the misapplication of the truth that we find in Proverbs 18, verse 21, where the Bible tells us that in the tongue, in our words, is contained the power of life and death. And a controlling person looks to things that lie outside of their design and their will and their way, and they try to put it to death through their words. You know, it's not uncommon for me to sit down with a, a family that their marriage is really struggling and the wife to say, you know, I really, I do, I do want my husband to lead us spiritually. As a matter of fact, whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the things that we focus on is saying, hey, you've got to do that. Husband, I want you to go home. And one of the challenges that we do is you need to go home and pray together. And you need to lead a devotion. But I can remember a time that I sat down with a family and the wife said the same thing. And I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and pray. And she said, he won't do it. He won't pray. And he said, I don't really know how to pray. I said, well, I want you to do this. You go home. After you get your kids to bed, you just hold her. And you pray this prayer. God, we love you. We'll do whatever you want us to do. That's it. Just do that. So they went home and they came back in. And they sat down. I said, well, how did it go? And he said, well, I did just what you said. And then she looked at me and she said, you think God's ever going to answer a prayer like that? I mean, all you did was just pray what he told you to pray. You think that guy ever wants to pray with his wife again? I can tell you right now he doesn't. I'm thankful. There's a lot of things that me and my wife have not gotten right. As a matter of fact, we may write a book one day called 101 Ways to Wreck Your Marriage. Um, but there's some things that I'm thankful that she's gotten right. And I can tell you that there have been a lot of times that I've come to her and said, I feel like the Lord's calling us to do this. Five years ago was the season where I said, I feel like God's calling us to come back to Albemarle. I know that it's a city that, that doesn't seem like it's ready for a brand new modern church, but I feel like God wants us to plant a church there. And, 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 and I know it's insecure, and I know that there's so much tension around that. And she always looked at me and said, if you believe we can do it, we can do it. I've, I've never, ever, struggled with wondering whether she believes in me or supports me. As a matter of fact, it's fairly common for me to get around some of our friends or people that she works with. And I can remember even during that season, sitting down with some friends and saying, you know, we're thinking about starting a church. And they said, yeah, we know. Amanda talked about it. She said, you're going to kill it. There's so many of us that live without that. And I can tell you that as a husband, there are many of times that I have been the person that's used words in a way that was so not life-giving. And I'm so thankful that she's been gracious to forgive me. You see, we have got to realize that all of us are weak. And wives, I want you to know something about your husband. He may look strong. 
He may have him some big muscles, all right? He may go to the gym, right? He may be able to bench press a, a truck, but he's still weak. And the thing about a godly woman is a godly woman can make a weak man stronger. But a controlling woman, a controlling woman will make a weak man weaker. See, there's never a guy or a girl that has crawled out from under a mountain of criticism to become a better spouse. It's time that we use our words to give life. The second way that we do it, we see Jezebel do it, is we control by assuming authority and taking over. I want you to understand there are some things in the dynamic of a relationship that you, as a spouse, you just do not have authority over it. I cannot make my wife love Jesus, be a good wife. I cannot make her care for our kids. I can't make her. I don't have the authority over her. She has the authority over her. Okay? I have the authority over our family and how I lead her, and she gets to respond to that. And so many times we try to take authority over something that God never gave us authority over. Jezebel does that when she says in the second part of verse 7 that I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I'll get it for you. You know, it's a lot like driving down, a, down the road. You ever, you ever notice that the front two seats of a car, there's one seat that has a lot of responsibility, and there's one seat that's pretty carefree. You ever notice that? There's a driver's seat. The person that's in the driver's seat's got a lot of responsibility, but the person that's in the passenger seat is pretty carefree. They get to listen to music, see the view, and enjoy the ride. But you know what happens with a lot of people in the passenger seat? Is they drive from the passenger seat. Anybody have a spouse that does that? Boy, I tell you what. Isn't that fun? But I, you know what's ridiculous is that we do that in life. We do it in life. And we do it to each other. And we assume responsibility over something that we're not supposed to be responsible for. It happens as easily as these words. You didn't do that right. I remember sitting down with a family, husband, and wife and wife said, I just need some help with our kids. You know, he just doesn't help at all. I just, I'm doing all this work all day long trying to take care of the kids. And he goes, well, you know what? Like two weeks ago, I tried to help you. I got up early, made breakfast for the kids and got them dressed. And I let you sleep in. But when you saw how the kids were dressed, you looked at me and said, is that how we're going to send our kids out today? Now he goes, you know, I understand the clothes were a little small. Three seasons too late, I know. But sometimes, sometimes we just don't let someone drive. And a lot of times I just want you to see this as maybe you're in here today and you're the wife and you're just saying, I have no idea why in our family I feel like I'm always in the driver's seat. He's supposed to be in the driver's seat, but I always feel like I'm the one having to take responsibility. Well, it might be that you've made it really easy for him to sit over there and enjoy the ride because you're always willing to step in and assume responsibility even when it's not yours. 
It may be one of those situations where you just go, you know what? He tried to, I realize those clothes a little bit too small, but we sent them out that way today anyway. Because he tried to help. And I need the help. If you're here today and you're struggling with that tension of I need help and I don't know how to, how to let someone lead. Let me just give you this one bit of information, and if you can accept this and receive this, it could change everything. It's so simple. It's that you just need to do this. You need to pray and then stay out of the way. Instead of taking control and taking authority, pray and stay out of the way. And watch as God leads, perhaps your husband, if you're a wife that's here today. Now, I do want to talk to the husbands because it's important. You see, if you're a husband and you're here today, it may be that your wife is controlling and always asserting her authority in your family because you've been so passive and unwilling to lead. And I want you to understand that in the dynamic of a relationship as it's described in Scripture, just like Adam, just like Ahab, God called you to lead your family. So let me just talk to you for a few minutes about what it means to lead. As a husband, God has called us to lead and God has called you to be the provider. God's called you to be the provider. Now by that, I don't mean that you have to make the most money. We live in a, in a community and in a culture where many of our families are dual income, okay? That's okay if that's something that you guys have agreed on. It also doesn't mean that you have to balance the checkbook. If she's better with money, let her help you by taking care of the money. But it does mean that you will assert your leadership to say that we will live by godly financial principles. God says to give, we'll give. God tells us to hate debt. We're going to hate debt. We're not going to live by debt. That's what being a provider is all about. I love the words that, that a, a great pastor said a long time ago, that when God says that we need to provide, it means that if you guys are sitting in the house and you're broke and you don't have any money, that the person that gets up from the table to go find food is the husband. God's called you to provide. Number two, God has called you to be the protector. Now, we, most men honor and receive this, okay? We know that if we hear glass shattering down the hall in the middle of the night, it's our job to get up and go run and go take care of the bad guy, all right? We know that. But let me tell you something more. It's your job to protect her heart. It's your job to protect her emotions. It's your job to protect her life with Jesus, her purity. It's your job to protect that. And if you don't protect it, what good is it to protect her body? You're called to be a protector. Number three, you're called to be a pastor. You're called to be a... Now, I know some of y'all just checked out on me. Kevin, I can't do that. 
I ain't going to lead no Bible study, exegetical, walk through the book of Revelation and talk all about the end times. I don't know anything. I can barely even read the Bible, all those dies and those and whatever that stuff is in there. You know, the word pastor comes from the word shepherd. And the idea was that as a pastor, you would take your people to a place where they can be fed and nurtured and cared for. See, as a husband, it's our job to lead our family in a way that we protect them. We protect their relationship with God. We provide for our family spiritually that they would have an opportunity to encounter God and to be in his house and to be shaped by him. See, being the pastor of your home never means that you're the hero. It means that Jesus is the hero. It never means that you are the complete and total satisfaction of your spouse. It means that you know that you could never be and you constantly point them to Jesus. So when they're afraid, you don't try to be the solution. You point them to Jesus. When they're worried, you don't try to be the solution. You point them to Jesus. When they're doubting financially, you don't try to be the solution. You point them to Jesus. When they're hurt and wounded, you don't try to be the solution. You point them to Jesus. Because when it comes to your spiritual life, I want you to understand something about your family. Number four, God will hold the husband accountable. God will hold the husband accountable. Watch what happens at the end of the story with Jezebel and Ahab as 1 Kings 21 comes to a conclusion. Jezebel is going to have Naboth executed and so the scriptures begin in verse 15. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, now the property is up for grabs. She said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. Now ask yourself, who had him killed? Jezebel, right? So when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. Now he is now at Naboth's vineyard where he has taken possession of it and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. See, I want you today, if you are the husband that is here, I want you to under the, just understand and grasp the gravity of your leadership in your family. It will not be easy, but God will hold you accountable. If you're standing next to your wife while she's choosing to walk away and you let it passively happen, God's not going to look at her. He's going to look at you. As a matter of fact, think about Adam and Eve. The book of Romans gives us the story of the fall of man. You know what's interesting about the book of Romans? Never once mentions Eve because God charged Adam to lead. And when failure entered, he held him responsible. In Romans 5.12, 
the book of Romans records this, that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, it would later say that death entered through Adam, then death through sin, in this way death came to all people. God held Adam accountable for the sin that we read in the narrative that started with his wife because he was charged to be the leader. So no more sitting passively aside as your family walks away from Jesus. No more. It's time for you to stand up and be a man and lead. I want you to understand something about that moment in the garden. Think about this with me. The temptation of the devil was what? You eat from this tree, you will become like God. And Eve bit at the opportunity to try to take something that wasn't theirs. But fast forward to the New Testament. After the work and the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus on the cross, and look at what Colossians records in Colossians 1.25, that God wanted them, them as the us, God wanted them to know the, the riches of and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles. That's for us as well. And this is the secret, that Christ lives in you. And this gives you the assurance of his glory. You see, I think there are some of us today that just need to be reminded that what Eve tried to take in the very beginning, God has now made a way to give it to us through Christ Jesus. And if you're in here today and you felt like your marriage is in the middle of failure and you're looking at the end of the story from somebody else and you're just saying, I don't know if we can make it. I don't know if we can ever experience what I've seen other people experience. I want you to know today that there's hope in Jesus. If we'll stop trying to be in control, We'll stop trying to manipulate it and get what we feel like we deserve and just say, God, it's all for you. God will take what you're giving because right now he's giving grace and redemption and hope for you. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.